Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 21. This is our CrossFit teaching series, Finding Wholeness in a Broken World, Contagious Christianity is the title of this weekend's message. This is number one, Contagious Christianity, number two next week. Take a look at your notes there. Peter is teaching us how to live the Christian life. As you well know, he's writing to a group of people that are, giving, are, are getting the living daylights beat out of them. They're being persecuted. Uh, probably similar to what many Christians are experiencing right now in Iraq as they're being chased out of that region and being persecuted, uh, killed, murdered, raped. Uh, this is what's happening to the group of people that Peter is writing to as they're being scattered throughout the region. They're under persecution, so he's showing us how through the gospel we have an amazing, an amazing, an amazing resource to face anything, absolutely anything. And uh, we come now to a section in the text that he's going to teach us how to live out the gospel in this non-Christian world, in a pagan world, hostile world, a cynical world, how to live out the gospel. And, and the foundation of this is found in verses 11 and 12. We'll spend most of our time in those uh, verses. But how to live out the gospel with a less than ideal government. That's verses 13 through 17. How many would say by show of hands that we have a less than ideal government here? Okay. So, yeah, some of you are just really anxious to be able to say that, weren't you? And uh, he's going to show us how to do that. He's going to show how do you live with a... By the way, if you think our government is bad, nothing compared to what they experienced. And then what we're going to learn also, too, is that how to live out the gospel or the Christian life with a less than ideal uh, employer. That's verses 18 through 21. How many by show of hands would say that you have a less than ideal employer? Okay. How many show of hands? Show of hands? Okay. I'm not raising my hand. Because I have a great employer. I would get fired from my elders. There's no elders in here. So, yeah, I raised my hand this morning. <laughs> yeah, because they're not perfect. They're, you know, where you work's not perfect. They're less than ideal. And then uh, as you work through this, he talks a little bit about just, uh, we'll be talking about this, verses 21 through 25, just how to be servants. Because Christ came and served us, we're going to serve one another and serve others. It really talks a lot about submission. And then chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, he talks about there how to live the gospel with a less than ideal marriage. By show of hands, how many would say, no, don't do that? <laughs> I don't want to get your spouse upset this morning, but it's true. It's true. My wife's right over there. She's got both of her hands raised right now. Less than ideal. Yeah, you got that right. Yeah, less than ideal marriage. How do you live the gospel in that? And then as you work through that, he talks about how to, to live the gospel in a less than ideal church. How many would say the church you attend is less than ideal? Raise your hand. Okay, yeah, you're, uh, where's the ushers? <laughs> Actually, all of us could raise our hands because this church is less than ideal. We're, we're, we're not perfect. In fact, you know what? We were, we were pretty ideal until you showed up. <laughs> and uh, if you could just get your act together, this would be a really good church. You know who I'm talking to? All of you. And me too. And so it's, it's really interesting here. Uh, 
I mean, he's just, he's just helping us to, how do we do that? How do we live this out? And then the rest of the book really talking about, you know, the resources, continued resources in the gospel and how to impact our society. That's where we're going. So here's my question for you. Is your love, as we talk about contagious Christianity, is your love for God contagious? Is your love for God contagious? Here's the definition. Is it spreading to and affecting others? Is it causing others to feel and act in a similar way that you feel to the gospel. That's contagious. See, the, the, the Christian faith is not just an agreement with facts in the head. You agree with the fact that Jesus came to this earth, he's God in the flesh, died for us to give us newness of life. It's more than just agreement of facts in the head. It's an appetite, it's an affection for Christ that exceeds all other appetites and affections that works its way out through your hands contagiously as you, from this emotional and gospel resource, serve others in the community in all of these different environments, all the way as it relates to the government, employment, marriage, church, every, everywhere we, we share the gospel, we are the gospel, we are living the gospel, and it is attractive to those around us. That's contagious Christianity. I, I think it's on your notes. Robert Murray McShaney says, the Christian is a person who makes it easy for others to believe in God. So is your life an irresistible invitation to the infinite value of knowing Christ? That's what we're gonna look at this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. We'll dive into our text. It's a wonderful text. So Father God, it's your amazing love for us that awakens our love for you. We love you because you first loved us. You pursued us passionately. You've swept us off of our feet with your love. And nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from your love. Because you gave your son, the ultimate treasure of heaven for us, we can be assured that you care about us and will take care of us for both time right now and for all eternity. So as we study your word, may your perfect love chase away our fears. Just take a moment right now with your heads bowed, eyes closed. Tells us in this book, 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your burdens upon the Lord, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. He is here today to meet with us and we can give him our fears. What is it that's troubling you? What are you struggling with? What are you worrying about? Give that to him this morning. He loves you, he cares about you, he hears you, he will respond to our prayers. He is working in behalf of what we, we share with him from our hearts, he loves us. God, we, we give those cares to you. We pray, God, as we study your word that your perfect love would chase away our fears, and may our love for you be contagious. May it spread to and affect others unlike ever before for your glory and our deep and durable joy. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. So let's take a look at this. Um, contagious Christianity, let me read the text, uh, starting with verse 11. Beloved, I urge you, and keep in mind this the context of this uh, Scott did a great job talking about our cornerstone, that's in this context, and then Darren talked about our identity as a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people who belong to God, and so that's the context. Now he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners 
in exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And then he goes to verse 12, keep your conduct. So you'll notice that first of all, he's dealing with the inside before he deals with the outside. And I love that's how the gospel, the gospel always starts on the inside, works its way outside. If you don't like what you see on the outside, it's because you've got to deal with the inside. It's not behavioral modification. It's heart transformation. So verse 11 is heart transformation. How to live in a fallen world. Well, it starts with, with our hearts. And then he says, so it starts with character that produces conduct. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Those are the pagans or those that are unbelievers or the hostile world. He says, do this honorably. Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, notice he doesn't say if they speak against you, but when they speak against you as evildoers. They're going to say, you're an evildoer, when in reality you're not. Hopefully. And he says, they may see, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So when God reveals himself to them, they'll realize the impact that you've had on their life and they will celebrate that because you had an impact on their life. When they're criticizing you and ridiculing you and coming after you to attack you, you continue to live a good life, an honorable life, a life that honors God, making much of Christ Jesus. And when Christ visits them and they are awakened to the reality of who Jesus is, they're going to go, wow, that person had a major impact on my life. That's what he's talking about there. Verse 13, now we get to the, the government, how to live this life out in a less than ideal government. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor. This was uh, Emperor Nero during this time, and he was pretty vicious, like using Christians to light his courtyards dipping them in pitch. So it's kind of interesting. He's just saying, hey, honor, honor the emperor in, in that context as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So he's actually laying out here what the government's job is. You can find a little bit more about the government's job also in the 13th chapter of Romans. But he's saying, um, by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Can you see that? Now, our, you can see a shift in our, in our, even in our country today where we tend to kind of reward even, we give rights to criminals, more rights than they deserve. When we start doing that, obviously, there's a breakdown in our culture and society. And you see that happening over the last couple decades. There's that tipping point. I won't, I won't mention any specific court cases, but it was really interesting. It's like, how did that guy get away from, with murder? I mean, what was going on there? And there's just a number of things. And that's, that's what he's saying. Hey, wait a minute. There's a shift going on here. We tend to honor almost criminals. They seem to have more rights, and we don't really honor the people that are living right and appropriately. And it's just the, the, the injustice that begins to take place within a system, and we certainly see that in America today in a lot of different ways. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So what he's saying here is that what's the best evidence for the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform someone's life, to change someone's life? The best evidence is a changed life. So he said put that on display. Live a changed life. Live a life of, of goodness so that when they look at your life they go, wow, I can see that the gospel brings tra life transformation. <clears throat> Verse 16, live as people who are free. Oh my goodness, the freedoms that we have in Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about that next week, but, the, but we, are, 
we are free in so many, so many different ways. Here, here's what happens is that God sets us free. He makes much of us to set us free from ourselves so that we can live our lives to make much of him. So that's the freedom. We have freedom to now live our lives for him. We're not self-consumed. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. He kind of summarizes it right here. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And now he moves into uh, how to live the Christian life with a less than ideal employer, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, so as you do this, you're mindful of God. He's with you. He loves you. He will never leave you or forsake you. That's a little bit of the idea. You're mindful of him. He's at the center of your life. He's your cornerstone. And so he says, for this is gracious thing, when mindful of, of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So no matter how the government goes, no matter how your employment goes, as you are suffering unjustly, you see the injustice all around you, you still are able to bring honor and glory to God. That's what he's saying. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure this, this is a gracious, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This is the word of the Lord to us. So contagious Christianity. Um, these guys kind of know me too well, and they knew that when I get back from vacation, I usually preach a, like a three-hour sermon because I'm so filled up. I mean, I just overdosed on God, and so I kind of tried to cut down this message. And so this will only be a two-hour sermon here this morning, not three. But actually, I did really well last night, and so we'll see if we can kind of continue that process here today. But... Uh, but contagious Christianity. So you only got two major points. We'll come back to the other two points next week. You can see how the outline is laid out there. But contagious Christianity, here's the first thing. Number one, realize their identity. Contagious Christians realize their identity. Now, uh, let me just repeat the context here. First Peter uh, 2, 6, uh, Scott two weeks ago talked about our cornerstone. And you guys are familiar with the cornerstone, hopefully. The cornerstone is the first stone laid. And as the cornerstone goes, so goes the building of the house. If the house isn't going so well, it's because of the cornerstone. So if your life's not going so well, it really has to do with the cornerstone. What's your cornerstone? Everybody has a cornerstone. If your cornerstone's not Christ, your house is probably not going to do so well. But if your cornerstone is Christ, regardless of what goes down, you're going to have a solid, strong life that will endure the storms of life. So if you're not enduring the storms of life, uh, that is, you have a lot of inordinate anxiety, anger, depression, things that are happening that are bombarding you, you're unable to navigate through that, you've got to look at your cornerstone. Because he says something here in verse 6, if you have your Bibles open, he says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Will not be put to shame. The word there means will not be confused disappointed or embarrassed. So if you believe in him, if he's your cornerstone, you will not be confused, disappointed, or embarrassed, or to put that in a positive way, you will be enlightened, satisfied, and confident regardless of your circumstances if indeed Jesus is your cornerstone. And then we also saw uh, last week, Darren did a great job at helping us to understand this, our identity. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Those are packed full. He called it an avalanche. 
an avalanche of our identity. It was just amazing. A people who belong to God to do what? To proclaim. Oh, I love that. These are great verses. These are great verses just to meditate on. To proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us, who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. <laughs> Not a better life on this planet Earth. And so that's the context. And then he says, he says, beloved. Those are tender words. He uses that word beloved eight times in his two letters. And he means them in two different ways. The word is much more than just friendship. He's not just saying, hey, friends. The, word, the root word is agape, so it's unconditional love. And the only one that really has that kind of love, it always begins with God. God is the source of that love. And so he's just saying, don't you know you are beloved of God? And so to the degree that I understand that I am beloved of God, to the degree that I'll be able to call you beloved, I'll be able to have that same kind of agape, unconditional love, sacrificial love for you. And uh, here's your next uh, point on your notes. So beloved means what more value could you possibly want or need than for the creator of the universe to adore you and give his life for you? That's what he means by that, beloved. Do you have any idea how much he adores you, loves you, gave his life for you. That would be probably the most important thing that you could start your day with and walk throughout the day in, in the reality of. That's the reason why I'm saying you've got to realize your identity, not just remember it, but realize it. It's got to go from your head down into your heart. It's got to become a reality. You are beloved. You are beloved. I am beloved. I find it interesting when you read through the Gospel of John, he constantly calls himself the beloved. He's like, he's got that down. He's like, I am beloved. I am the beloved. He loves me. He has a crazy love for me. And so you can see that if you're going to be contagious, you've got to start there. You've got to start with realizing your identity. So what more value could you possibly want or need than for the creator of the universe to adore you and give his life for you? And then he says, sojourners and exiles. And what he means by that is that first sojourner just means you're passing through. This life, just passing through exile. This ain't, this ain't my home. This isn't my home. And uh, it means our citizenship, our home is in heaven. Philippians 3.10 emphasizes that. Therefore, our values, we have a different set of values that we work from. That's your fill in the blank. Our values are from God's word and not the world. Um, and so here's my question for you. Do, you. do you yearn for heaven and to be with Jesus? That's a little bit of that idea. Yearning for heaven to be with Jesus, recognizing this ain't my home, just passing through. I was raised in a church that they talked a lot back in the 60s, 70s in particular, as I was reached the high school years in 70s. They talked a lot about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Um, and I, I kind of liked that, but it also kind of freaked me out a little bit. They, there was a movie that came out back in those days. It was called uh, Left Behind. Anybody remember that? That movie, Left Behind? There was a, I mean, and it so freaked me out, I couldn't sleep. I mean, I was just like, it's like, that frightened me. Couldn't sleep for a couple years. <laughs> Made my hair fall out. But, uh, and that's the reason. But, uh, but actually, I mean, it's just like, wow. And I'm thinking, and they were all talking about the second coming. They're all excited. And I'm thinking, wait, wait, I'm, I'm young. I, I'm, I'm wanting to get my driver's license first. I just want to get my driver's license before he comes back. And then, and then uh, I want to get married and have kids before he comes back. Anybody ever have that kind of sense that you were raised in the church? And then I got married and had kids and said, please come back. <laughs> so I realized, oh my goodness, what did I get myself into? Because I did that when I was really young. I, was, I got married when I was like 14 or something like that. 
okay, I was 20, going on 21, and then we had kids before, we had three kids before 25, so I'm like, whoa. But, uh, but it was, that showed my immaturity, because his second coming, him coming back, me being with him, oh my goodness, there's nothing, there's no bucket list. Often I hear people say, well, they, he was able to accomplish his bucket list before he died. Who cares? He's with Jesus. All the bucket lists in the world don't compare to being with him. <laughs> I mean, so it's just, it's just crazy. You want to get your driver's license? Oh my goodness, you have no idea what you're going to experience when you're with Jesus for all eternity. And so there's this kind of normal experience that we should have if we're healthy, that we long, we yearn for heaven to be with Jesus. Paul was experiencing that in Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 26. He says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And he says, I'm torn between the two. I know I need to be here to help you folks out, the church in Philippi, but man, I long to be with my Savior. It's better by far. He's got a great, great attitude, a great heart. There's a, a book that I like to pull off my shelf from time to time. It's called 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. And the very last question that he asked in this book is, do you yearn for heaven and to be with Jesus and there's a quote I wanted to read to you I found quite profound. Uh, it's a quote from David Brainerd. Brainerd was a missionary to Indians in the 18th century New England. He died of tuberculosis in the home of Jonathan Edwards at age 29. Edwards published The Life and Diary of David Brainerd, which remains a classic of Christian devotion. An entry in 1742 is typical. Listen to what this guy says. In his journal, Saturday, June the 12th, spent much time in prayer this morning and enjoyed much sweetness. Felt insatiable longings after God much of the day. I wondered how poor souls do to live that have no God. He's just saying, how do people do it without God? The world with all of its enjoyments quite vanished. You hear he's saying, saying, the more I experienced him, the more I realized all of this stuff, trivial pursuits. It's nothing compared to what I have in him. The big home I thought that I, you know, I valued or the, the nice car or, or whatever, you know, it, it mean, it's meaningless. That's what happens to our hearts as we get closer to him. We, go, we begin to realize it's just it quite vanished. I see myself very helpless. That's another thing that happens when we get close to him. Man, I, I, I'm more desperate than I thought. I see myself helpless, but I have a blessed God to go to. So not only do we see our, our brokenness and our, our sinfulness is exposed, but all, all we see our Savior, he's adequate. He's adequate for all that we need. And, uh, and he goes on, he says, uh, I see myself very helpless, but I have a blessed God to go to. I longed exceedingly to be dissolved and to be with Christ, to behold his glory. Oh, my weak, weary soul longs to arrive at my father's house. Those are good words. So here's what happens. When you encounter Christ, you walk with him. There's that normal longing. You begin to realize, hey, I'm just passing through. This is not my home. You have a different set of values. And, and, the, and you begin to realize you, you're not going to lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But you're going to lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Because you realize where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. And, um, and as, you, as you kind of continue to do that, the more you realize this, uh, 
the more you understand this, the more you realize this world is not your home, the less the things of this world enslave you. The fires, the floods, the tornadoes, the thieves, the downturned economy, divorce, disease, death can't take your true wealth. They can't touch your true wealth. All the storms in the world cannot take your true wealth. You begin to understand that. So you begin to hang on to things a, a little lighter. In fact, you're able to give them up. You're able to, to invest them into the kingdom of God. Uh, and so that's, that's, our, that's our resources. That's our identity. Realize their identity. We're beloved. We're sojourners and exiles. And then the next one is number two, resist their sinful impulses. So if we're going to be contagious, we've got to learn to resist our sinful impulses. Verse 11, second part of verse 11, abstain from passions. The Greek word is epithemia. It's an over-desire, so abstain from epithemia, over-desires of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Um, there are desires that are waging war. This is not just competition. Listen to me. It is waging war against your soul. It wants to dominate. There are passions within us that want to dominate, rule, control your life. He says abstain from these. What are, the, what are these uh, epithemia? What, is that, what does that mean? If I were to describe it in a general sense, Galatians 5, 16 through 25 is a great cross-reference. I'd encourage you to read that and work through the growing notes this next week. But he kind of makes this contrast between the flesh and the spirit. Flesh is more of that self-centered life, self-absorption. It's living life uh, in such a way that you're, you want to make much of you. It's living to make much of you as opposed to a life of the spirit is that you're living to make much of God. And that's what's warring in our soul. Either one or the other is going to dominate our lives. And that's what he says. The flesh, the King James says, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. The two are contrary to one another. Are you going to live a life that makes much of you? Is it going to be about you or is it going to be about God? That's the big question. And you have passions that are waging war. Now, let me just say this. You, you want to pay attention here because this stuff right here that I'm about to share with you has been life transforming for my life as, I've, as I have wrestled with my own passions of the flesh that have waged war against my soul to dominate my soul, to keep me from all that God has for me. Uh, here's the next uh, fill in the blank. It is not just wanting bad things... So a lot of times we define this as, oh, lie, cheat, and steal. Don't do that. That's wrong. Adultery, that's wrong. Don't dishonor your mom and dad. That's wrong. Of course those are wrong. But those are all symptomatic. There's a much deeper issue. There's a sin below the sin. He's getting to the sin below the sin that drives all of our symptomatic kind of sins. He says, so it is not just wanting bad things, but wanting good things too badly. It is wanting anything more than you want Christ. So sin is what we do when we are not satisfied with Christ. Let me give you a, a number of illustrations so that you understand this. I knew a woman a number of years ago who uh, was terribly jealous. She, she had a husband that she was terribly jealous of, afraid of losing her husband. So she nagged him, controlled him, spied on him, was suspicious of him only to lose him, to push him away. Nothing wrong with not wanting to lose your husband. The problem is, is that when it becomes an epithumia, and over-desire, you want that more than you want Christ. 
It begins to dominate, control, uh, rule your life. And it will create major problems in your life. So you could say, hey, stop nagging him. Stop trying to control him. But unless she begin to get to the root issue, which is a, an over-desire, she had turned her husband into a Lord and Savior. If I lose him, life's over. That's basically what that over-desire is saying. I've seen this also with, with parenting. I've seen parents, nothing wrong with focusing on the family, but not to the point where it's an epithumia, an over-desire, where it takes the place of God. Because then I see parents, they either become too compliant, they're permissive, because they want their kids to be happy. And I'm thinking, what? How about holy? But then holy, don't push that to an extreme where you're controlling and manipulating them and dominating them. Because I've seen, I actually, I've seen many, many parents lose their kids because they focused on the family that became idolatry in their lives. Or I've seen it with money. I've seen people where they oversave because money is security for them. Money will never give you the security that only Christ can give you. Therefore, that's the reason why you become almost a hoarder. You begin to obsess over it. I gotta have more money, more money. Nancy and I were out with a couple the other night. We talked about hoarding. Anybody ever see that show, Hoarding? Isn't that interesting? Some of that is certainly chemistry, but some of that can be driven also by the fact that it's uh, epithumia, it's an over-desire, and some of it's legit that has become a, uh, you know, a phobia, this fear that dominates your life, and it's a failure to trust God. It's a failure to trust God. So, so you can certainly do it with money. I've seen people also overspend because money is significant. It's got to have the big car, big house. I've got to feel good about myself. It makes me feel better when I have a new set of clothes on. Hey, everybody, look at me. See, so when you start looking at, well, why would you overspend? You need to stop overspending. Well, the reason why you're overspending is because you, you're not looking to Christ for your significance. You're looking to money. You're looking to these things, and that's why you, you're not paying attention to how you're spending. I've seen it in job success. Epithumia. Over-desire. And you do that to the point that you neglect your health, your family, even your spiritual life. Uh, that becomes w more important. People-pleasing. For years, people-pleasing was a big thing. And what was interesting about that is that you're more concerned about what people said about you than what he's already said about you. You're his beloved. You're his beloved. He adores you. He loves you. He gave his life for you. And yet I'd be more concerned about someone else and what they said. Can you see the war that rages for dominance of our soul. Same thing for perfectionism or workaholism. That's driven by a performance record because you have not yet really fully received his performance record. Jesus' performance record for you, that you stand before God completely righteous. So, so you can see where that's, where that's rooted. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And even a bitter person, and that's why you can have two people going through identical circumstances. One becomes bitter, one becomes better. Why is the person bitter? Because something has come between them and an epithemia, an over-desire. What they've said is, if I lose that, it's the end of the world, and they lost it, and somebody interfered with it, and therefore I'm bitter, I'm angry, I can't live without, that's, the, that's really the root of, of bitterness. And so this is kind of how it works, is Romans 3.23, it says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We fail to see how desirable and how attractive and how amazingly satisfying the Lord Jesus is. And so in unbelief, 
and in pride, we think we can do better than what he's doing in our lives, we substitute him for something else, an epithumia, uh, an over-desire, whether it be you know, getting married or if I'm single. And I've seen it with single people thinking, man, if I, could just, if I could just get married, and I'd like to just send a parade of married people through their home just to, <laughs> just to have them talk to them about that uh, over-desire. <clears throat> and so it's, it's, beca- it's based on unbelief, pride, idolatry, God's substitute. And what we do is, uh, Romans 1.25, we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve created things more than the creator. I like what Randy Alcorn says. He says, people who reject God can maintain the, illu- uh, the illusion. People who reject God can maintain the illusion that life is good without him because in his kindness, he hasn't withdrawn all of his good gifts. It's called common grace. The common grace is meant is meant to not fill the emptiness inside that only Christ can fill. But that's the reason why people are so obsessed. They get into, they gotta have bigger paychecks and more money and bigger homes and fancier cabins or, or whatever it is. It's just, it's driving that. If you look at the obsessions in our society today that even that drives a lot of the capitalism, it's they're trying to fill a void inside. Consumerism. That's, it's just you're trying to fill that void inside. But if you had paused long enough, you'd realize this common grace, these gifts, these good, and, these good and perfect gifts that God gives us, perfect gift is his son, but the good gifts are meant to lead us to the perfect gift, his son. If we would pause long enough and realize, hey, there's nothing on this planet that can satisfy me like him. That's why Jesus said, what good is it if a man gains the whole world but loses his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? You mean to tell me you're going to choose a, a career over God? That's what he's saying. You mean to tell me for all eternity you're going to give up God for the fleeting pleasures of sin? Some promiscuous sexuality? He's saying that's ludicrous. That's crazy. That's insane. Here's the next point on your notes. If we aren't battling our sinful desires, counterfeit gods, then they've won. You need to be able to identify your counterfeit gods. I had to be able to come to you and say, hey, what are your counterfeit gods? And you had to say, well, this week, my counterfeit gods are? Galatians 5.17 talks about this war that rages back and forth. Let me give you three tests, three tests to identify your counterfeit gods. It's not on your notes, but you, I think you might be able to remember this. Which, how do I know that I'm worshiping and serving created things more than the creator? When do you most lose track of time? Time just flies. You can sit and play video games for 10 hours at a time or six hours at a time. There's an issue there with that a little bit. Or or sit in front of the TV or any number of things. I mean, where do you lose track of time? What do you do? uh, what do uh, What do you most worry about? What do you most worry about? So with my wife and I, she'd most worry about our kids. And my attitude was like, ah, they'll get over it or they'll grow out of it or... Whatever. And then I would worry most about, what do you think I'd worry most about? Work, Work, yeah, church, this church. And she'd go, they'll get over it. (laughs) Yeah, she'd say kind of like the same thing, you know, that I would say to her. They'll get over it, it's no big deal. So you'd think that she's being insensitive and I'm being insensitive to her, but we just have different epithemios. We just have different over-desires that dominates our lives. So what do you worry about? Where do you most effortlessly put your time and money? Here's a better one. You've heard me say this many times before. Where does your mind effortlessly go to 
when nothing is uh, grabbing your immediate attention, nothing is demanding your immediate attention, what do you do in your solitude? That will tell you what your true religion is, what your real God is. If you, and if you pause long enough and really listen, you're going to find out that it's probably not God. Because when he says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he's saying, let me dominate your solitude. Let me so consume your life that when you're laying in bed at night and can't sleep, you're thinking about me. When you're waiting on the elevator to go up to the third floor, wherever, you know, let it be dominated by me. Because if it is, you're going to have all the, content, the contentment and the completeness, the courage you'll ever need in me to face anything. Here's your next point. The power of sin's promise is defeated by the power of God's. This is how we overcome these, how we uh, abstain from these desires, these uh, passions of the flesh that wage war against our soul. They're wanting to dominate our souls. We sin because it holds out a promise of happiness. If you ever looked at someone and you're going, why would they do that? They left their, their marriage, their marriage relationship, their spouse for this person or whatever. Here's what it is. The reason why we do those things is we sin because it holds out a promise of happiness. People do that and they don't do it out of duty. They do it because they think they're gonna be happier. You take that drink because you think you're going to be happier. You pursue that relationship because you think you're going to be happier. You're deceived. You're deceived into thinking you're going to be happier. And that promise enslaves us until we believe that Christ is more to be desired than all that life can give or death can take away. Listen to this quote from Thomas Chalmers. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. So it's through the explosive power of a greater affection in Christ, I'm able to abstain from these uh, passions of the flesh that wage war against my soul. That's how I overcome those things. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards said. This is a, a part, these are excerpts from a um, sermon that he preached back in 1734. Quite profound very insightful. This is what he says. There is a powerful vice grip that sin exercises on the human heart that mere shouts of denunciation and religious scolding and the intimidation of church authorities cannot dislodge. So all the getting in the face of someone, you shouldn't do that. Stop doing that. It's not going to happen. You're going to help them by doing that. This is what he says. The promise and allure of sinful gratification must be countered, must be overcome by the promise and allure of a gratification in God that is sweeter and more beautiful and more exquisite and more satisfying. He goes on, another excerpt. The pursuit of God brings delights of more sublime nature, pleasures that are more solid and substantial, vastly sweeter, more exquisitely delighting, and of more satisfying nature that exceed the pleasures of the vain, sensual youth as much as gold and pearls exceed dirt and dung. Pretty profound. So let me just give you a, kind of a modern-day illustration. There's quite a craze came out this last week with, I guess there was a book, and now they've got a movie. It's going to come out Valentine's weekend or something, Shades of Grey. You guys familiar with that? How many show of hands are familiar with that? You're afraid to raise your hand because we're in church, aren't you? I would raise my hand, Pastor Ray, but I'm afraid I'll get struck by lightning. That lightning started last night. I'm afraid some of that's going to come in here. 
Shades of gray. They call it mommy porn. Why would mommy need porn? Isn't that weird? This perverted is what it is. I don't know that much about it other than I've heard some things. So this is what the Bible would say. Because, every, I mean, everybody's like raving about it. And they're actually having study groups. Women are getting together and studying this and reading it. Isn't that interesting? And so here's the, here's the, uh, here's the modern day uh, comparison. What the Bible says, shades of gray, dirt and dung. God's word, golden pearls. You guys tracking with me? See, now why would you feast on dirt and dung? See, and every time that you walk away from God, every time you make a choice that's outside of his commandments, dirt and dung, you're just deceived. That's why your friends look at you like, what the heck? What are you thinking? And you can't see it because you're deceived. The enemy has gotten into your head, into your mind, into your heart, and deceives you. Dirt and dung. I've got something better. By the way, Song of Solomon, you want something better? Song of Solomon, baby! <laughs> that's good stuff. I mean, that's, it's not profane. It's, it's very sacred. And when you begin to see the, the, the sacredness of sexuality and, and what the Bible teaches, and so that's, that's a kind of a modern-day understanding of that. And uh, so let me wrap it up there. Let me kind of give you an illustration, and we're going to finish up here this morning. Um, share with you a story. I went on vacation to binge on Jesus to feast on the abundance of his house and to drink from his river of delights as I do every year about this time. And Psalm 36 talks about that. And I, I did that. I did that amazingly. And, and at the same time, God did something to me that was quite profound. He also did this to my wife. Uh, while we were away, as we spent time with the Lord, he pulled back the, the curtain and revealed to us the war that wages against our souls. And he's done that from time to time in my life just to see the severity of what we're up against. Just texts like this. And, then, and as I began to see this, I was devastated. And it broke me. And it reminded me of a, an experience I had on the fire department at the very first part of my career. I call it my John 10.10 10 experience. If you've ever wondered, why do we have John 10.10 10 as the theme of our church, obviously not the first part of that verse, but the second part of that verse. This is why. This is why I had an experience. I was a booter firefighter, just gotten on. I was on station at Station 5, 16th Street in Thomas. And uh, booter is a probationary firefighter. Just gotten on the fire department. We sat down for dinner and we got a call. It was an attempted suicide. Went down the street, code three, arrived at the two-story apartment complex, kind of middle class. Seemed to be a decent complex. Police had already kind of taped it off. All the people were outside trying to figure out what's going, in, going on inside the apartment. Got up there. Police officer said, hey, he's, he's gone. You probably don't even need to go in there. But my captain went in there, and he went in, and then he came back and I says, Booter, you need to see this. I walked in there, and it was the most traumatic thing I'd ever experienced. See, this guy was a 21-year-old who had been in a relationship on again, off again, on again, off again, and, the, and finally the girlfriend said, I'm finished with you. And that was an epithumia to him, and because she was finished with him, he was finished with life. And he took a double-barrel shotgun towards his head and pulled both triggers and blew his head. 
It was the worst scene I had ever, I've ever seen. Nine oh one H, you know, just just he's dead. He's he's gone. We load up in the truck, go back to the to the station, sit down. I, I eat, try to continue out the activities of the night. I tried to distract myself from what I had seen, but the Holy Spirit would not let me. The Holy Spirit would not let me. The Holy Spirit began to speak to me. And the Holy Spirit was saying to me, think about what you just saw. Let the reality of it grip your heart. Don't you see, don't you see how high the stakes are? Don't you see what hangs in the balance? People's souls, not just for this short life, but for all eternity. The thief comes to kill, still, and destroy. Don't you see that? And I was just, I was overwhelmed. I've never been able to shake it. It's what drove me to eventually uh, retire from the fire department early and start this church. Actually, we started the church while I was on the fire department. It just drove this. I realized, I realized that the fire department, there's no agency on this planet that give to this guy what he needed. He needed Christ as the cornerstone of his life to be able to endure the storms of life. There's nothing on this planet that, that can give that to him except the gospel of Jesus Christ. Except the gospel of Jesus Christ. I saw the needs unlike I'd ever seen them before and realized people need the Lord. See, that's the basis of Desert Breeze. We're gonna do all we can to reach into the community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank you guys for being here and contributing and giving of your time and talents and, and treasures. You guys do that tremendously. We are making an impact. We're gonna to continue to make that impact, not just in this neighborhood, but throughout the world. I love Desert Breeze. I love what we're doing, and that's the thrust. The thrust of it is that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Don't you see that sin is the suicidal exchange of the fountain of living water for broken cisterns that can hold no water? That's what the Lord was speaking to me. Satan wages war against our soul through the passions of our flesh and the values of this world for us to make the suicidal exchange of the fountain of living water for broken cisterns, broken wells. That's why Jesus said, what good is it if a man gains the whole world but loses his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. And he invaded our pathetic plight with his presence, his peace, and power that goes beyond anything we face or experience. Praise God for that. And so we're here to proclaim the fullness of life that we have through Jesus Christ. And I'm so thankful that we are able to do that week in and week out. So this is where we're going with the rest of the study. We're gonna continue to talk about this, this idea. So realize your identity, resist your sinful impulses. We're gonna talk about rest in your integrity. And um, well, I'll tell you what, I've done that throughout the years. I've had a lot of people come and criticize me and I've silenced my critics because I just felt like I'm gonna outlive them, I'm gonna outlast them. I'm going to continue to do good. I'm going to continue to proclaim the gospel. I'm going to continue to be consistent with that. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Rest in your integrity. So he talks about, and then refuse to be insubordinate. Don't have a rebellious attitude. We're going to talk about how, how uh, politics has become a form of idolatry in our society today. You're going to want to listen to that. And uh, we have to be real careful in that area. And then, of course, the bottom line, we want to live as people who are free servants of God, honor everyone. For this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an example so that you might follow in his steps. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Wonderful day. Wonderful weekend.
So let's pray. God, it's our desire that we would live our lives in such a way that how we handle our time, our money, our sexuality, our relationships, our success, our failures, our cancer, our, our crisis, how we would respond to this less than ideal government, employment, marriage, church, whatever it is that people would infer from our lives that Jesus is more valuable than anything. And in him, we have fullness of life. God, I pray that uh, each person here would begin to identify what are the epithumias of their life, those over-desires that tend to take your place, Lord Jesus, and may you be placed as the cornerstone of their lives. May we be reminded of our identity in him, and may we declare the excellencies of you, God, who has called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. God bless you.